0: singleton noise podcast would like to thank our sponsors alan heath rcf and rational acoustics i'm looking forward to seeing them at infocom coming up rational acoustics recently released Smart Version 9 and they've had recent updates to that um, RCA f- continues to make great speakers I'm curious to hear their demo room at Infocom and Alan and Heath well they've just been making solid consoles for quite some time now they just won a Parnelli for the Advantis and all around all three of these companies are doing great things and they are great supporters of the podcast so we just want to give them some love thank you
1: I wish I could break free back to where I supposed to be i, wish I break free back to where i'm supposed
0: to be welcome to the sickle's noise podcast on the Pro on web podcast network i'm chris leonard and returning for i don't know second third maybe fourth time at this point i'm not quite sure how many times it's aaron peligian how's it going aaron
1: hey how's it going
0: and for those who don't remember, um, so Aram worked with me or uh, for me for quite a few years um, and then um, left, uh, to my dismay but also excitement, uh, <laughs> to his current job uh, working for the United States Marine Band as a recording engineer and live, you know, live sound engineer for uh, the Marine Band. So uh, we have two episodes at least talking about those things, so go back and check them out. But tonight I am really uh, excited. Uh, oh, I guess hello. we're gonna start over. Actually, we're, we're we're rolling, so it's okay. Oh, don't mind and me. Also, Michael Lawrence. <laughs> um, Dude,
2: did I just did I just miss it?
0: Well, I wasn't sure if you were joining, so I was just I hit record and we're rolling. But oh. it's all good. It's well, well, hello, that's, that's, hello that's everyone, how, hello that's Dan, how we, hello Aaron, that's how we roll. hello, hello, hello. Um, and, uh, well, I'm getting right into it. So, tonight, I've been wanting to have this conversation for quite some time, and um, and the, the time is right. So, uh, we have Dan Dugan with us. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: I, I almost feel like for our audience, I don't really need to do an introduction, but I will at least for some context people who may not know who you are. Um, may, some people might not realize you're an actual person and not just a plug-in and a console or an outboard piece of gear. So... <laughs> Um, I, uh, so for those who don't know, um, you've been in the business for, you know, 55-ish plus years. You just celebrated your 80th birthday. Um, you got your start in, um, and, uh, in theater. Um, uh, you can correct me if this is wrong <laughs> once I get through it. Um, uh, you're Emmy award winning, uh, you do nature sound recording, um, and you have designed, um, you were the first person in regional theater to be called a sound designer. Uh, and you developed um, the first uh, effective automatic uh, microphone mixer. So you know, small list of credentials there. <laughs> that's,
3: well, that's
2: pretty good. That's pretty good, Chris. I'm impressed. <laughs> you did your research.
3: Yeah
0: the, did i mess Did I mess anything up there,
3: Dan? No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> except, oh, well, except regional theater is a the conservative uh, statement. Um, oh, okay. I claim. I claimed to be the first person to have program credit as a sound designer in the world, but um, that's disputed. But I, I say, show me the program. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'll
0: take your word for it. What, um, what
2: show was that, Dan?
3: Um, for the uh, 1968-69 season of American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco.
2: That's cool. What, um, when you think about sound design at that? era, I mean, are you talking just audience mic? I mean, like area mics and pencil mics and, and like, I don't even know what, what you would be working uh,
3: with. In musicals, it was area mics. Uh, in uh, uh, straight theater, uh, it was mostly just music and sound effects. So, for example, for a Shakespeare festival, I, I worked at the Globe in San Diego a number of times. The sound uh, the sound person, it was sound technician at that time, would record an original score uh, with musicians which uh, a composer who had been hired for the production would, would write and then edit it and, uh, and operate it, uh, you know, operate it during the show. And uh, when I came along, it was more in a, uh, uh, well, I, I spent a couple of years operating the shows also. Um, but then I, when the sound designer role was established, I started, you know, training the operator and then, you know, writing the cues. And getting it all down and then going on to another show.
1: So what was the push to actually say, hey, we need to name this role sound designer. This is this person's job. Now this is my job.
3: Well, uh, yeah, elevating it to a design level is, you know, still not fully accepted in, you know, in all areas. I mean, you have in the, I think in the Oscars, they knocked out something for, for a while, they knocked out sound design on um, hmm. the award, so it's still it's still controversial. It's not a real design thing; it's just some <laughs> technical. You know, it's some technical thing. But um, the production stage manager um, thought that the work that I was doing was on the design level, and so uh, she convinced the management to uh, give me that credit, and I'm forever grateful.
0: That's fascinating. Um, so. While we'll definitely get to the auto-mixing side of things, let's, let's push that aside for a minute. I'm, I want to get to what I'm more curious about, quite frankly, <laughs> uh, which is um, your your nature sounds and recording. Um, there's, um, I'm sure some people who have been following you for a little bit probably know that, but I, I'd venture to guess that most people who know what the Dan Dugan auto product is has zero idea um, that you do that, and that's actually, I think... Probably more of your true love from what I can kind of see your passionately as of late, so can you kind of talk about what you how you got into nature sound recording and what what kind of goes into that
3: yeah, um because I was a theatrical sound designer, um, I had to learn how to calibrate tape recorders because that's the tool that the sound designer used, and if it was a dull tool, then you had dull sound and um I was unhappy with shops, you know. When, when tape recorders came back from shops, they were not good enough. And so, while I was working at uh, ACT in San Francisco, I bought, uh, I built Heathkit instruments, you know, oscillators and mm-hmm. distortion analyzers and l- vacuum tube voltmeters, and all the instruments to do calibration. Bought the manuals for all the tape decks, and taught myself how to calibrate tape decks. Um, so that skill led to having a shop in San Francisco where I worked on Nagras, because at some point someone in the motion picture industry came to me with a Nagra, and they had the same problem that I had in the theater. They would send machines down to the Nagra shop in Los Angeles and get them back, and they didn't feel that they were really at their best. And so they asked me, who had no experience with Nagras, um, if I could work on it, and well, the Nagra is different from all other tape recorders, so I, I learned by doing and made, made a lot of mistakes. But, um, but I did learn how to do it, and I developed a, a cult following and uh, a group of recordists in, San, in the Bay Area who uh, were very much into quality. Um, this group of recordists, were, uh, they were recording at 15 IPS, uh, dialogue for motion pictures, Things like the black stallion, for example, is one of the first ones of the that was done that way. And in Hollywood, it was seven and a half ips. It was just dialogue. You know, mm-hmm. nobody cared that it sounded really great. <laughs> um, and and actually, Nagra's didn't come out of the factory set up very well for fifteen ips because nobody used it in the motion picture industry. But um, in the Bay Area, they did, and that went on for about thirty years. Um, Now, what does this have to do with nature recording? Well, uh, the person who was in charge of sound at the Oakland Museum uh, brought over the museum's Nagra, which they used for nature recording, uh, which I would fix up for them occasionally. And um, uh, he said, well, uh, you know, once a year we go out to, uh, we have a workshop up in the Sierras where we record nature. And it'd be great to have you come. Why don't you come along sometime? So I did. And it was great fun going up and, uh, and recording nature. Um, I actually didn't record for about 10 years. I just served as a mentor teaching people how to use their microphones and what was the difference between balanced and unbalanced and, you know, all the stuff. It's very complicated, the sound stuff that people wanted to learn. But I didn't have a recorder my I didn't own a Nagra mm. and I didn't have anything except a, a, a Sony uh Pro Walkman, WMD six C I think it was <laughs> called. Which was really a very fine machine and I had I had it tweaked up very fine. But um it's I didn't feel it was good enough for nature ambiences, you know, still. It was just a cassette. And so for a long time I just took photographs and, and uh helped people. But then uh once um when I was invited to go on a trip to New Zealand, um, I was talking to an intern here who was a taper, you know, a concert taper. And he said, well, take take my MD recorder. And so I did. And, um, and I had a stereo, uh, a little Sony MS stereo microphone. And when I was in New Zealand, I made I got takes which were the equivalent of a small album, though I never put it into an album. I've, I've got it in my archive. And I got all these wonderful tapes of environments and, and animals and birds and things in New Zealand. And so th- then I was hooked. You know, I was definitely going to be doing my own nature recording because that was good enough. Now, that was, you know, something like it was a compression system, like MP3, mm-hmm. Um I forget it had its own name. they had their own patented uh, data compression system. It was about a five to one data compression, but it sounded very good, and so that wasn't really not a problem and um pretty soon I was doing surround sound with two m d recorders and I would post synchronize them in uh, pro tools um at the beginning of the take. I would click a party clicker you know mm. and um that would give a reference going into the front and the rear microphones from where I was hiding about 50-80 feet away. And uh, then I would click again at the end of the, of the recording. And so then the first thing I would do in Pro Tools is I would line up the head clicks of the two pairs. And then I would adjust the sample, just make a sample rate adjustment, which doesn't affect the fidelity at all, of the rear tracks so that they had exactly the same length. So that took care of the fact that the two MD recorders didn't have the same clock, mm. okay? And it only had to be within a few milliseconds. You know, the mics are are like 20, I use wide space mics, they're 20, 30 feet apart. So a couple of milliseconds here or there didn't matter. Uh, it didn't even have to be synchronized as tight as dialogue is synchronized. And then um, I would know, when I did the click, I would know the geometry of what the recording setup was so I could do an offset between the front pair and the rear pair to uh you know to make them all Spatially. be properly re- properly related because I knew what the geometry was where I was sitting where I made the click so uh, i I did oh I don't know five or six years of of four channel recording with uh, two md recorders <laughs> and then and then things like the sound devices uh 744 was the first, um, yeah, seven forty four, was the first uh, actual four channel recorder that I had. A whole new world, of course, hard drive recording. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah.
0: what, what do you, um, what do you do with them? What do you do with all those recordings?
3: Well, um, I build an archive, and I have fun with it. I've I published a couple of things um, on the Nature Sound Society. Uh, Website uh, www.naturesoundsplural.org. Um, there's a page about members' recordings, uh, and on that on that list, there's uh, there's links to a couple of things that I have published. But I have developed a relationship with the national parks, so um, I get research permits. And I can go camp in a place where you're not allowed to camp. Mm. And uh, mm. I've developed, you know, to have scientific credibility with the parks, I've developed a protocol where I record for 90 minutes in the evening until dark. And then I stand by during the night with a pre record buffer for anything that might happen, uh, you know, uh, coyotes, uh, frogs, um, trees falling, all sorts of <laughs> things happen, go bump in the night. And um so I get interesting sounds in the night. But I don't record continuously. I just pick it up and use a pre record buffer to you know, if if you don't know a pre record buffer is constantly recording in a circular buffer. And when you hit record, that becomes the first part of the recording. And so if you're fast enough in hitting the button, you get like five seconds or even ten <laughs> seconds of what you just heard is already recorded. And uh so that way you can catch a tree falling, which I've done now three times, um, and uh, and so then and then I record ninety minutes in the morning from nautical twilight, which is called nautical because that's the point at which the the horizon is just illuminated, so a sailor could shoot the height of a star and look it up in tables and find out what his latitude was. That was the earliest time in the day that a sailor could could get at the latitude reading. And so, um, that's called nautical twilight. And about 20 in the springtime, when birds are breeding about 20 minutes after 15 or 20 minutes after nautical twilight is when the dawn chorus starts. Uh, that's when all the birds wake up and they start Hmm. to sing and they, they establish their territories for about, you know, about 40 minutes or so. Uh, they all sing. And, um, then it dies off and they go off and, and forage for breakfast. And so that's the dessert. You know, That's the really nice thing uh, that you want to record and all the species show up, hopefully. And some come early and some come later to the party. And um, so uh, that's the protocol. And it's much better, I mean, originally for many years I would scope out a place I wanted to record. I would stumble out there at in the morning and set up equipment, you know, with a headlight. And sometimes I get lost Mm -hmm. and couldn't find the place that I I thought was easy to find in the daytime. And sometimes I would trip on things and fall on my face, you know. Um, But now with this protocol, I'm in the sack when the, you know, when the uh, dawn chorus starts and I just set an alarm and turn it on (laughs) and, uh, you know, no problem.
0: That's fascinating. Um, what? I mean, so many
1: things. Um, so, go I, ahead, Aaron. <laughs> so would you say that it's, you're more interested in, oh, I want to capture these unique sounds, uh, you know, this part of nature, or it's the process for you and, and continuously improving the fidelity and, you know, that process that you're doing, or is it pretty evenly both or where does that stand for you?
3: Well, it's both. And that's what makes it so much fun as a hobby, you know, there's certainly no, there's no money in it. I think my publications made $37 last year, you know? So <laughs> it's definitely, you don't know, get rich doing nature sounds, but it's great fun. And with, I've got other colleagues who are doing the same thing. And we now have, I think about five parks covered in what we call our adopt a park program. And so there's other people doing this for for parks also. And, um, uh, and we kind of compete with each other and and the principle is we make scientifically valid documents that are beautiful. Hmm, so in words, we're doing art and science at the same time. uh three of us are recording in theatrical surround sound so um and we've just added height channels for atmos, you know, and uh so we're going through the throes of figuring out do we actually need to have mics up high. Or can we use directional mics lower down to get the height channels and uh, all that? But yeah, it's it, you know evolving the technical side of it is a lot of fun. And lying out there with the headphones on in the sack and listen to this glorious uh, dawn chorus—that's really great too. So I mean, you know, <laughs> for for tech guys, it's uh, it's wonderful. That's so cool.
0: I saw you recently, so you went to like uh, Yosemite, uh, I think recently, um, and I don't know if this is where you were doing it, but you um, you had microphones like strapped to trees and stuff like that. Were you trying to record the tree itself or is that just a mic placement technique? What were you doing with that?
3: Well, I have two systems. I have a light system and a heavy system. The heavy system is professional stuff, you know, uh, uh, Sennheiser 8020 Omni mics, uh, a Jekylland disc for the front channels. Uh, mic stands, cables, snakes, you know, all that stuff. I got a stand that goes up 16 feet and spaces, two mics, four feet apart, 16 feet up on the end of a boom. And uh, all that weighs a lot. So that's for places within a quarter mile of where I can get a car. Um, And then I have a light system, which is backpackable and can weigh as little as seven pounds, which is basically lavalier mics, but they're the quietest lavaliers in the world, which are made by uh, a company called Talinga in Sweden. And uh, they have about a 14 dBA noise level, which is low enough. Uh, anything lower than about 16 dBA noise level is adequate for, uh, <clears throat> for soundscape recording. You know, like the, uh, the Sennheisers are 10 dBA, and that's really nice. Uh, but with the 16 or 14 DBA mics, I can get an adequate uh, soundscape in anything except the most quiet places, because you'd really like the uh, the ambience of the place to be above the self-noise of the mics. Mm, but yeah. when you get out in a really quiet forest where there's no water running, or in a, in a desert at a time when there's uh, the birds are not breeding, it gets so quiet that you cannot hear anything except the self-noise of your mics. That that really freaked me out the first time in in Joshua Tree. That's one of the, another one of the parks mm-hmm. that I that I go to. Um, I was I, I went out in the in the sagebrush country and uh, Colorado Desert is the biological type, and um, it wasn't the right time of year for anything to be happening there. And I had ordinarily balanced my mics at that time by listening to the ambience and you know soloing the different mics and getting the ambience because they're all omnis getting the ambience balanced, but there wasn't any ambience, (laughs) you know, all I was hearing was the mic hiss and that kind of freaked me out. I was, I was, I couldn't know what to do, but uh, anyway, so the light system is backpackable and and, uh, a lot of the recording I do is with just these lavaliers and I don't take any stands and I use lavalier type mic cable and I have long cables uh, with Electret mics at the end of it and I know the capacitance of the cable is rolling the mics off about maybe half a db at 20k but who cares you know it makes it possible uh to do it that way with you know unbalanced mics because i have to keep my my phone shut off for, for not you know sometimes it'll make clicks and buzzes mm-hmm. in those unbalanced mic circuits but um so that's that's the light system and, and Uh, One of the best mic mounting techniques for the light system is to tie a cord around a big tree and then tuck four mics at the points of the compass or, you know, a front pair facing what I think is the front of the sound stage, what I hope is going to be the sound stage, or from experience what I know is the best sound stage at this location. And then I've got, you know, my two rears and my two fronts, 90 degrees apart on a big tree, and you get a lot of separation, uh, on, on even at lower frequencies, on sides of a big tree. You know, I mean, a tree that's like four or five feet in diameter. So um, that's the light system, and that's what we call tree ears. And, and if, <laughs> it, if that doesn't work, I'm clipping them to bushes, and sometimes I even lay them on the ground, and that works too
0: you before we got on you were playing a little sample of some stuff did you want to maybe share that and explain what 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 that was
3: yeah sure uh about a week ago uh we were in uh, yosemite national park and i have four different locations that i cover there and in the first one which is called Ackerson meadow which is a a place on the northwest corner of the park which is not open to the public yet uh it's just been added to the park in a land swap deal with several private owners and, and uh Bureau of Land Management and a bunch of different things. Uh, they put together this tract in this beautiful meadow, which has been ruined by a hundred years of being used for cattle grazing. And so there are, it's been drained, you know, to improve it. And so there are like 12 foot deep gullies eroded through it and the park service is going to fill in those gullies. I mean, they're going to turn it into a construction site and it's going to look terrible for five or six years, but then it'll grow back and it'll actually be a natural wet meadow again. Hmm. And um, that's, and so I got onto that when it was proposed and said, Oh, I'm going to record it before and after, you know, I'll have a continuous record. Okay. So I added that to my annual, uh, annual recording list. And I recorded with the he- with the light system, Uh, out in the middle of it, and then on the edge by the road, I recorded with the heavy system and the overheads and everything. Um, And so uh, this year, this is, I think, yeah, okay. Um, This is from a set of tree ears. That's a a black-headed grosbeak, which is kind of a... It's kind of creative like a mockingbird. Actually, let me bring up the rears and take down the fronts. Okay, that's the other side. That's the rear mics. Here to bring up the fronts again, take down the rears. Okay, so that's that's the two pairs anyway. Um, the guy's a real jazz artist, <laughs>
0: <sighs> that's so cool. What, what has been, um, what's, what's been the most, what's been the pinnacle of something you've recorded in nature or the thing that just uh, most memorable for you?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, Well, my my favorite sound is uh, is a thing called the mountain quail. And actually, they do show up in this recording, but somewhere else. Um, It makes a, uh, it's kind of a mid-range quack sound. And um, since it's lower, it really reverberates in the space and gives a real sense of you know where you are in the forest or in the meadow it's reflecting off the trees on the edge of the meadow and so that's a favorite thing um i guess the trees falling is sort of you know one of the greatest uh uh accomplishments you know th- proving uh, that when a tree falls in the forest uh, <laughs> it does indeed make a sound and uh uh Yeah, I was uh, uh, actually, I I was in Muir Woods recording once where about a half a mile away, a big tree fell right across a trail. This was during a time when the public was there and a couple of people were were barely missed. Um, Oh, wow. But I I I got it recorded. (laughs) (laughs) So they put it on their website for a while. That was great. Um, What else do I love? I love owls. Owls are really nice. and It was kind of disappointing this year that... um, I got one owl species, I think, um, in the distance. But on this location before, I've gotten great gray owls, which are rare and endangered. And and, uh, that's one of the reasons I go to this spot called the Two Trees in Ackerson Meadow, is to hope to get great grays again. But um, no luck this year, no owls at all in in Ackerson Meadow. Um, But they're really beautiful. One, One night in Muir Woods, I got four different species of owl. And that was that was a pinnacle experience. I mean, they were distant, you know a couple of them were really distant and not a good recording, but that doesn't matter you know <laughs> <laughs> they were there
0: uh, are oh, are you taking any notes at all while you're sitting there listening or are you just purely observing
3: yeah i'm I'm making field notes just to be scientific, you know I uh, write down i i It's not necessary for me to try to record all the species I hear. One, because I'm not good enough at that yet, and the other, um, because there's a, uh, a program uh, called BirdNet that runs on a server that we've just gotten installed of our own version of it. It comes from Cornell University, and it's an AI thing that recognizes bird species. And, um, it's like sh-
0: Shazam for birds. yeah exactly exactly
3: uh except it's really it's better because i think shazam is based on recorded you know known patterns whereas this deals with a lot of variability and there's a consumer version of it called merlin which is an app which i highly recommend if you ever listen to birds get get merlin and you just hold it up and record and it says that's an american robin
0: you know
3: that's an orange crowned warbler it's it's just amazing ai is is uh not only scary, it's also very helpful when it's uh, doing something like that for you.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I tell you what. What's, so let's transition out of the background noise. I love it. I love it. I just that way, uh, depending on what that comes like out in post, uh, I'm, I'm gonna edit Mark here and we'll restart. Yeah. The, right. Right. Just in, yeah. Just in case. The
3: actually that that ambient sound is water in those you know mm-hmm. in those creeks going through mm-hmm. the gullies. Um, because there was a record snowfall in the Sierras last year. Um, I mean, like 200% of average. And that's all melting now. And so the waterfalls in Yosemite are just thundering. Mm. Uh, And everywhere else, you know, the creeks are just roaring. One of my annual locations, the creek was so loud that every once in a while you could tell maybe there were birds singing. You know, wow. but I went ahead and did the protocol anyway because I'm a good you know citizen scientist, but it's really worthless because it's all just water noise hmm. um but you know a couple of years ago I think it was twenty seventeen we were in the midst of a terrible drought, and a lot of these streams in the mountains are fed exclusively by snowmelt, and so it really depends upon what the snow year is like um how much noise there is and there have been times in Tuolumne Grove of giant Sequoias where it's been almost dead quiet and perfect recording conditions not this year
0: so it is the um is the majority of what you're trying to capture um is 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 birds and animals right i mean as opposed to water and wind obviously right i mean like how does well
3: it's it's what's called the soundscape which is everything that happens including airplanes you know including uh noisy trucks, uh, engine braking on the highway a couple miles away. You know, uh, everything is part of the soundscape. Uh, Fortunately, at the time of dawn chorus, which is starting, you know, around 4.15 in the morning um, at this time of year, which is when the the birds are breeding, there's very few airplanes. Um, I get interrupted maybe once or twice during a dawn chorus in Yosemite. But in the evening, Yosemite Valley, is at the intersection of two airways. And so there's an aircraft every five a high altitude jet every five minutes in Yosemite Valley. But you've got the roar of the waterfalls. So that on <laughs> a good water year that that masks that mostly. But it's really not good recording conditions in Yosemite Valley. Other places a little better, but the groves where I record, there are usually a bunch of airplanes in the evening. You know, going from Los Angeles going from San Francisco East or red eyes coming in, gotcha. you know, uh, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but, um, that's the soundscape, you know, <laughs> I, I record what's there and, you know, and I, and I really hope for the quiet times cause that's, that's the beauty, that's the aesthetic part of it is the quiet times. The rest is that, you know, it's documentation.
1: Sure. So as a tangent off of that, I saw, because I, Spent a couple of minutes looking on Wikipedia that you participated uh, and, and in some research related to the harmful effects of human-generated sound in nature. What did you end up doing with that?
3: Uh, well, that was in Muir Woods. Uh, I helped with a, a a scientist who was doing a. Uh, I think I actually got put on as a co-author on his paper, uh, which is that's very nice because I don't have any science degrees, you know. <laughs> um, but. Um, um, He was interested in what the people felt about the space they were in at different degrees of human crowding. And so he set up near the entrance to the park, and when people came in, he would show them like five pictures of an area in the park with like five degrees of crowding. You know, one, there's just a couple of people there. Then there's three or four people there down to where it's crowded, you know of the same space. And he asked them a couple of questions like, what was, this is when they were coming out, actually. What was the, your experience like today? And, um, you know, how, how do you feel about, uh, about it? And he also, we put him in a, in a closet um, and put headphones on him and played an audio equivalent of that, you know, a, a place in the park, with the natural sound, with just a little bit of, you know, somebody walking through, um, and then increasingly more crowded, which I composed that stuff. And uh, that was my part in it. But in order to do that, I, I did a sort of a catalog of human generated sounds in the park, including trash cans, banging and, you know, uh, things like that. And, uh, people's phones, you know, that was, uh, just before smartphones so there's only beetle 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 things that i had recorded (laughs) and all that stuff so i documented all that because i wasn't sure really what you know what he wanted to do then it came out to be fairly simple but um that was that very
0: neat so let's let's transition to the auto mixer uh or the the um that's,
2: that's I'm, what, sure, that's, I'm sure that's, no that's, one's
3: ever asked
0: you
2: about that before dan <laughs> well
3: <laughs> I, 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 my hope that's is what to pays maybe, the bills it pays the I, bills know, for the, I know yeah.
0: i i what i what i don't want to do is just reiterate every story and question you've ever been asked about it right so but i don't want to leave anybody behind so can you give a brief synopsis of just the origin of it and what it actually does and what the mis- most misconceptions of what it's not
3: good yeah um well, how it came about was, um, uh, you know, in my, early, in my youth, I did everything. I, I worked on anything that I could get, you know, in sound and lighting. And gradually I transitioned from, from lighting to sound. And um, I, when, uh, when, well, actually, it, now I have to tell a story. Um, that's what,
0: that's the what we're reason,
3: here for. The reason I did was because of my nerdy personality. I mean, I'm nerdy now, but when I was young, I was so nerdy, uh, it was it was impossible. And um, in lighting, when I started doing professional lighting, I had to interface with uh, Yahtzee uh, uh, stagehands, and um, they, you know, they can be pretty crusty, and they don't they don't like being told to do something over that they just did yesterday because you made a mistake, things like that, you know. And I did not have the diplomatic skills to work with union lighting crews. You know, I was just, I was out there in a perfectionist artist. I was the artist, you know, uh, attitude. And that didn't go over with those guys very well at all. And so I found when I got to sound uh, in legitimate theater, you know, in in drama, repertory theater, uh, Shakespeare festivals, ACT in San Francisco, regional repertory theater, um that the sound department was usually like one union guy, and uh, and he was a really nice guy in all the cases that I happened to work with. And so I found that a much more friendly environment for my personality defects and uh, and so that's that's really why I, I changed out of lighting into sound because I loved them both, and I did them both for for many years, but... When I got into professionalism and being paid more for it, then I, I gradually switched to sound. Though so I also did a lot of, of live sound. I did um, the Mandavi Jazz Festival for seven years with a constantly evolving sound system. And I went through the transition. People used to sit there and be quiet. And so I had a relatively small, very high fidelity sound system. Everybody just loved my sound at some point the bands got louder they started all bringing electric instruments and jazz became all electric and loud and the audience started talking and partying during the you know during the show which was not the same and so the sound system had to get louder and louder and bigger and bigger and it didn't look as nice as the the winery liked that's why they They eventually replaced me after seven years with somebody who didn't want to put up so many big speakers. I had, I had Meyer JM threes on, on scaffold towers there, which were great. And that's what it took to get over this now become rowdy audience. But I kind of hated that transition and I was kind of glad to get out of it, you know, because when they all sat politely and listened, that was nice. <laughs> no, I forget what you asked me, but that was that's
0: not... uh, the you know, the introduction of the you know the auto mixer and then you know, kind of yeah what it does okay and, you know. yeah
3: so so from theater uh, I was doing sound at ACT in San Francisco uh, I built their their production studio and I built systems for both of the two theaters they operated um, this is how I earned the title sound designer okay <laughs> and. Um, uh, they rented the current Theater, their big theater, to a, a regional production of Hair. Hair had been successful in New York for many years, uh, you know, selling out for years. And so they started a Los Angeles production, uh, which was also successful, a resident production. And so the next one was San Francisco. This was in 68, I think. And so I wanted to run the sound for it. Actually, I talked to the you know, at the union uh, agent, and um, applied for the job of operating it. Uh, no way. No way. It was, uh, he put an old fart on it, who, who hated rock and roll and did a terrible job. But that was the way the union was uh, during that during that time. Uh, and There were lots of nice people in it, but, you know, things like that would happen. And, um, but however, I had convinced the, uh, the Uber company that was producing the hair uh, productions um, that I was really good, uh, which was kind of hype. And so (laughs) they hired me for the next three productions, which was Chicago, Las Vegas, and Toronto. So I designed the live reinforcement systems for hair in Chicago, which went very well, Las Vegas, which did not go well, and Toronto, which went well. Um, And um, so I had a lot of, you know, it was a difficult, really difficult job. There were 16 area mics, which were hung on, you know, like there was five in the footlights and then three pipes of hanging microphones. I used uh, AKG 451Es. And um, then there were nine hand mics, uh, which were uh, EV635s. You know, which were these these uh, reporter mics, which were just like absolutely rough. You know, they could do they could take anything because it was a rough and tumble show. And the way I I conceived for handling the mics was I made a kind of a spice rack on right stage and one upstage center and one on left stage that had three microphones in each position. And um, the microphones were covered with. Mystic tape in different colors. So you had the red mic, the green mic, the blue mic, the yellow mic, the purple mic, etc. So the operator could see what mic, you know, and people coming on stage would grab a mic off the rack when they came in. And then there was a, a floor man who would go around and, you know, and up the cables when they got off stage and, you know, left everything in a mess. So there was one guy that kind of untangled all the cables continuously. And um, I made a, a panel This was, you have to know, in 1968, you could not buy a mixing console. Mixing consoles at that time were custom built for recording studios, television studios, and radio studios. And the chief engineer, when he was hired for a studio, would spend a year building the console. That was the first thing you did when you built a studio. And that was not possible in the timeline that you know that we had on these productions, so these hair shows were run on a rack of rotary knob mixers. Okay, no equalizers, no nothing, um, just rotary knobs, <laughs> and for the gain of each microphone. And as a matter of fact, with the four hundred and fifty-one Es, I didn't use any mic preamps. They were they were Bozak. Uh, Bozak made a ten channel uh, PA mixer. And I took, the, I took the preamp cards out of it because the level from, uh, either from shouting into the 635s or from the hanging uh, 451s was high enough to go to the mix bus without any mic preamp at all. Hmm. Uh, it was a curious thing, but it, you know, it sounded fine. And um, so uh, I made this switch panel with nine big telephone lever switches on it, each one covered with the mystic tape and the colors of the microphones. So he could have levels preset for the, you know, for the vocals mixer right above this panel of, of big lever switches. And when he saw the red mic come on stage, click, you know, then he can mix the red mic. Um, so that was the way we handled the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, vocal mics. And then there was one wireless for a special effect in, uh, with an Echoplex, which again, I built from a kit. Nice, that's awesome. <laughs> um, uh, tape Echo, which uh, was wireless on an FM FM band wireless system. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Something with a V, maybe. But, Vega, um, maybe? Yeah, I think it was a Vega. And uh, that was the uh, that special effect. Um, but that was the only wireless mic, you know, and now we have like 40 wireless mics on a Broadway (laughs) stage. You know, I eat my heart out. Uh, But um, those were the days, you know, and uh, it was really tough to run. So long story, but fun to hear. Um, That was what made me think about automatic microphone mixing, you know. If you had something that would turn on a microphone when it needed to be on, and wouldn't turn it on when you didn't need it to be on, that could be very helpful in a situation like that. And though I didn't really solve the problem for theater, um, I certainly did, fo- you know, solve it for talking heads and television and uh, and corporate. Um, so uh, I, I uh, had a big success, not exactly what I was trying to do. But, you know, initially I thought, well, okay, so you have Gates, you know, but a uh, the problem with gates is that they have a fixed threshold, and so sometimes you have loud sound in the, when you don't want the mics on, and other times, you know, uh, it's, it's too variable. You have to keep retuning the gates, and what's that, you know, you might as well operate it manually. Um, so a box of gates didn't work, and actually Altec had tried a few years before me to put out an automatic mixer, which which was a box of gates. And it was a disaster, disaster. because there would be a loud sound, and then all the mics would come on, and the system would feed back. (laughs) So I mean, it was a trap. gates are a trap for feedback. And um, so that didn't work. Um, So I worked on this for about six years, just experimenting. Uh, The first thing I thought about there was a gate, which was real popular in studios, kind of esoteric, people who wanted to spend extra, called a keepax, and it had a two-to-one expansion below the threshold instead of just switching off and on. So it was a downward expander, and that was a gate with kind of a soft error, you know, at the point where it was sort of working. Uh, it wouldn't make popping off and on. So, like it, it you know, it didn't <laughs> do that. Um, it would kind of surge. Uh, instead, which was much more easier to listen to, so that was the first thing that sort of improved it. And um, I was using a VCA, uh, which I made from a, uh, a LED LDR combination. It was a little uh, a little bug thing that was molded together that had an LED and a would you believe cadmium sulf- sulfide cell in it, which was the there were no photodiodes at that time. This was a cadmium sulfide resistive cell, which was what was in Magic Eye, you know, door openers and things like that, and and the LED, and unbeknownst to me, that actually had a, a sort of a logarithmic curve to it of control to, you know, dB. It was sort of linear in dB, uh, which I didn't really know, but that was the that was the element that you know. My first gating experiment, I used FETs switching off and on. Sounded terrible, you know. Then I used this VCA uh, with downward expansion. Sounded better, you know. And then there's another circuit which would monitor the number of mics that was on. It would get a voltage when a microphone was on full, and through a, a hand-built um, what do you call it? Uh, curve follower, I guess. Function generator in analog computing—it's called a function generator. Through a hand-built function generator, that would control another VCA for doing a master. So that as more mics came on, as two mics came on, we go down 3 dB. and four mics were on, we go down 6 dB. This is the NOM curve. Okay, so the combination of a soft gate and the NOM curve made the first version of an automatic mixer that actually worked. And I showed that at the I demonstrated that working at the aES um, somewhere in the seventies I can't remember when it was seventy four something like that seventy six and they're in the mid seventies uh, at the aES show in New York. I did a paper and, and I actually made it work and it did work um, in my demonstration, which was not altogether a, a sure thing with a kind of a breadboard you know put together um, but so that was that was what started it and um that never actually got into production. Uh, I you know, shopped that idea around to some manufacturers and didn't get any interest. But in the meantime, I kept playing with it and I had the idea, well, oh, and then well, there's one there's one step I forgot to mention. I also had an ambience mic which read the ambience in the room, and that controlled the threshold. Of all the downward expanders, yeah. okay sorry i missed I missed the magic part there, and so when the band is playing loud, then the threshold would be would be high. but you know a singer singing into a microphone, he's obviously going to be singing louder than the band at the microphone, right? So it would come on then when say it goes down to one guitar playing, then you could sing in a microphone you know from farther away and the microphone would come on because again, you're still louder than the ambience in the room at the microphone. So that became called the Dugan Music System later um, because I did experiments with that. I said, well, you know, all, all the microphones are listening to the ambience all the time. So there should be some way to derive the control signal from all the microphones. And so I did different patches on this breadboard uh, that I had and uh, there was one patch that all of a sudden just was magic. And I, and I didn't know what it was. But whenever I would talk near a microphone, it would come up to full gain and the other ones would go down. And, but yet when I wasn't talking on a microphone, all the microphones would come up to medium gains that added up to one gain, to one, the gain of one microphone. And the NOM circuit wasn't needed at all somehow that interaction, NOM was implicit in that. Now, then I had to sit down and reverse engineer it and figure out what the hell the formula was. (laughs) And it turned out to be really, really simple. Now, if I had sat down and said, well, we have this problem. Well, here's a formula that's gonna solve that problem. If I had invented that formula, you know, out of my mind, I would really be a genius. But I stumbled into it. And um, of course, later the electronics got much better. There was a, uh, a company called SSM, Solid State Music, that made a dual VCA and level detector called a 2120, an SSM 2120. And that was an analog computing chip that had two logarithmic uh, level detectors and two logarithmic VCAs. And that did the function. Perfectly, You know, when you calibrated it, hooked it up. And it was totally stable. My first generations of stuff, those cadmium sulfide cells, they aged. You know, a few years later, they would would be out of calibration. Hmm. So that was really kind of junk, though. I managed to sell it. I went to 10 different manufacturers with this, you know, working prototype of the new, of the speech system, which is what I called it because it was not suitable for mixing music. Um, and nine of them turned it down. I went to Shore first because I liked their stuff. I liked the little mixers they made that had, you know, they had a switch for microline line output and they, you know, they had all the stuff you needed in a little little package. Um, and so I thought they were really smart and I wanted them to do this. And they said, oh no, we, we have a gate in our system, you know, and they did have, they did have a gate. Accessory, of course. Later on, they patented a system which I had prototyped and rejected, and that became their automatic microphone system, their AMS system, which was a gating system with an adaptive threshold. But um, anyway, uh, I didn't patent the scheme which they used. Um, but um, anyway, and so with the twenty-one twenty, was about the t- well to go back a step. I lo- Altec Lansing. Light was the first manufacturer to license the automatic mixer Hmm. and they were not a very smart company. Uh, the engineers didn't even really understand how it worked. And so there had to be a switch in there, which actually turned it into a box of gates because that's what they understood. But I made sure in the instructions that it was called normal and gate or something like that. So at least they had a chance of people use leaving it in normal, you know, but, um, and they gradually improved it over the years, but it never got to the point where they, where I would want to have my name on it, and they would never put my name on it anyway. Then the patent expired. I said, "Hey, it's mine again," you know. And and I made a lot of money on that for for about 15 years. I put my kids in private schools and and did fine. Uh, it was always one of the top four of their selling products. Altec was like the General Motors of Sound at that time. They called them Big Green. Mm-hmm. They did all the theaters and a lot of the auditoriums and, you know, big PA systems and stuff. Uh, you know, the uh, the voice of the theater speaker uh, was what uh, what Meyer turned into the JM3. He hot-rotted that and turned it into the first uh, really sophisticated, totally engineered, electronically processed loudspeaker that was so loud it'd blow your socks off. You know, <laughs> unbelievable. Um, and, uh, anyway, and once I saw all these applications, I mean, automatic mixing can do all these different things. And so i I cut my hair. I was a hippie after hair. <laughs> I had hair down to my waist and a, and a big miner's beard. And, uh, there were, there were three people at the, uh, Ron Wickersham, uh, John Meyer and me at the AES convention who were hippies. And, Sometimes people would come on to us like we didn't really know, you know, we were rock stars or something. We didn't really know what we were talking about. And they'd give us all this bullshit about their products, you know, but we're the, the three hippies at the AES shows. But um, anyway, um, I presented 10 product ideas to the board of Altec, you know, various sizes of consoles, all sorts of things that you could do with automatic mixing. The president, the CEO fell asleep at the meeting. <laughs> so that was out there. So I was glad to leave that. And so then I, the 2120s came out and I spent a year building a prototype of an automatic mixing controller, which was a big hot eight channel automatic mixing controller um, that weighed like 20 pounds and um, was held to ship. But um, I sold about one a month of those for a number of years because it was the only thing, you know, and it got on the Letterman show fairly early and it became a secret weapon, you know, and people people would buy it and not talk about it. Um, And uh, um, so, and that worked perfectly. It was just precise. And so that really made the reputation for automatic mixing. It came out of the church closet, is what I say, you know, (laughs) at that point. Um, And the Dan Dugan became a meaningful thing in sound. Um, So... Uh, you know, and then after of course, after a number of years, I started looking for somebody to do a digital, and made my current relationship with uh, uh, with uh, 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 what's the company? Uh, Yamaha. Well, that's that's a little later. Oh, well, uh, the sorry. company that <laughs> builds my products. Oh,
0: the actual digital, right? The standalone digital stuff that you. Yeah, yeah. My gotcha. my box. Okay. I have
3: seven different products now, and if I could sell them, I have uh, supply chain problems. And I'm relatively small. You know, I'm really, I'm really small, actually. You call my number, you get me. <laughs> and um,
0: that's, the, the funny thing about that, though, is that's something I heard. So even like the first time I was introduced to, you know, um, a, um, a Dan Dugan box, which it was an external box, so I, I, you know, it wasn't just a card you put in a console. It wasn't an insert; it was an actual, you know, analog insert box. Now, I did insert it on a PM5D, so I still was using a digital desk at the time. But like that was the first thing that um, Robert Jones at MSI had told me. He was like, "Yeah," he was like, "He's like, I, I just, I just called. I needed one of these things, and I literally called up Dan, and I like rented one right from Dan. Like, and Dan answered the phone, like." <laughs> <laughs>
3: we're a very small company and so you know we'll build like 50 in a batch Mm -hmm. and that'll last like a year and a half of each model and so i came into the supply chain problem a little later you know like a couple of years after everybody else was not able to ship their products i was not able to ship the products and i just shipped seven model m's last week for the first time in i think a year wow um and now we've got to decide what we're going to build a small batch of next. And we're going to have a couple of models, unfortunately, which will be premium priced. Because we have to get parts from brokers, which are like 10, 20 times the normal price.
0: What What's uh, some unique um, instances that you didn't expect someone to be, that you heard of as someone using your product for?
3: Well, there's one rock and roll application. Um, uh, the band called The Killers. Uh, The lead vocalist uh, uses two different microphones, and, you know, they're on stands, on the stage. He may grab one, he may grab another. Well, uh, the guy who was doing sound on this tour put him in a Dugan automatic mixer, speech system, automatic mixer. And so it doesn't matter whatever one he's singing on, the other one is completely suppressed. And, you know the thing that doesn't work about the speech system for music is harmonizing. You know, it's what it's built for is selecting the mic where the one mic where somebody's talking. Sure. Um, so that worked perfect for that application. Uh, kind of an overkill expense. Uh, to have, you know, he, he uses a Model M, the uh, uh, the Madi model, but he's got 64 channels in there. He's using two, uh, but it works perfectly. And he says, listen, that, you know, That just difference between one mic and two mic on a rock and roll stage is valuable. It's worth it. So that's, that's, I never expected that.
0: I have a unconventional, well, I call it unconventional trick that I use when I was using, you know, a a Dugan Um, in corporate, when you have a panel of people in your hotel ballroom, there's constant HVAC noise, right? Um, And so often what would happen is if you have your entire panel um mic up whether it's lobs or whether it's um you know uh push the talks on the table or whatever um <laughs> oh yeah michael has a bird in his house that's uh that's joey
3: a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush
0: <laughs> um and um and so you there what i noticed after time was that if you have everyone inserted um on the dugan um the noise floor wasn't constant in the records because it was trying to suppress you know the background noise so you would get this pumping of 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 noise in moments where people would stop talking briefly before the next person would would pick up um and uh, it
3: it, would go over the mixer would go over to a mic that was had a louder you know or, or had higher gain it would go over to a higher gain mic maybe yeah
0: so, um, and for in the room from a live standpoint, doesn't matter. You don't hear that pumping at all. Purely just in records and broadcast, you would. So, what I would do well, is now,
3: now you want to record. This is something that happens in you know the sound devices mixers. You don't want to record the the automatic mix. I mean, you, you record the automatic mix for a, for a whole mix, but you don't record the the individual channels sure and you record the individual channels pre dugan so sure. that uh then in post if they want to fix something they can fix it yeah, <laughs> yeah. <go on.
0: laughs> no, no no you're fine no and generally like again we're talking like basic corporate where there's not gonna be any post work like whatever is printed to that record is gonna get 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 there right uh, so right. i i came up with a what well, i, I A trick that I used that I wanted the the HVAC noise or the background noise to be consistent no matter what was happening. So I would typically, um, I would take either, you're good, uh, I would take either a podium mic that wasn't being used um, or one of the persons on the panel uh, and I would insert the Dugan um, uh, on that channel so it was reacting but I would bypass it on that channel so it would Keep that person's mic would have constant noise floor going to the record, but while still causing effect with everyone else on the panel, purely to keep consistent noise level on the record so you didn't hear a a pumping. Yeah, that's that's
3: what I call the dummy mic technique. Yeah, you can use an ambience mic and turn it up, an ambience mic that's not in the mix, and then it'll turn it into a more of a music system, uh, into a gating system, yeah, a, a downward expanding system. Right.
0: Go ahead, yeah, Amber. I, I you, guess oh, I, okay.
3: you know, somebody you you asked one of the questions of how does it work? Maybe sure. I should I should do an explanation if we if we have time.
0: We have we have time.
3: Okay, I have I have the time. Um, at least. You know, the formula is really simple. Um, it takes the level of the mic that you're talking on, and compares that to the level of the sum of all the mics. Before the process. So it takes the level of one mic before the process and divides it by the level of all the sum of all the mics before the process. Okay? That's the formula. And that's all there is to it. I mean, there's lots of nuances of timing and stuff like that and frequency emphasis and lots of other tricks are in there. But that's the formula that does the automatic mixing. And so imagine you've got like four microphones, and each is just picking up ambience. Okay, so you've got a millivolt, a millivolt, a millivolt, and a millivolt. Okay, so you've got four millivolts uh, on the sum of all the mics. And then you look at the individual mic, that's one millivolt. Okay, so you get that ratio, mic one is one millivolt to four millivolts. And so you make the gain of the mic that ratio. Okay, so that becomes one quarter. So you've got four mics, and during the ambient condition, each is getting one quarter gain, which is minus six in dBs. Okay, so they're all just sort of, but they all add up to one. And assuming, assuming the ambience is the same at all the microphones, it's going to be perfect. You know, the more it's different on the different mics, the less it's going to work perfectly. And so then somebody talks. So say we got one volt coming out of the preamp on this mic. And the other mics, for simplicity, we say are still picking up ambience. So you've got the sum is of all the mics is one volt plus three millivolts, one for each of the mics that you're not talking on, right? So you have 1.003 you have 1, which is what you've got for the level of this mic, divided by 1.003. That's very close to 1, right? Substantially, that's 1. So what happens is the gain calculation for the mic you're talking on goes up to 1. The other three mics, which were at minus 6 before you talked, the other three mics are now 1 over 0.1, which means are actually 0.01, one millivolt, right? So they go way, they get pushed way down. So you have the same ambience pickup because there's one mic at full gain and the other three are not in the picture. But the gain has shifted tremendously to where it's uh, it's all concentrated on one mic and the other three are pushed way down. And um, that's that's the result of this very simple calculation of, the level of this mic compared to the level of the sum of all the mics together before processing, and that ratio becomes the gain of this mic, and it's magic. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I so say, well, what if two people are talking at once? Well, actually, when two people talk at once, you know, speech is a bunch of bursts, so it's much more complicated in time. Mm. But if, but if you you know, if you simplify it and say, well, if you got one volt and one mm. volt. Uh, coming out, so two people are talking at the same volume, and you've got two of them at point at one millivolt and one millivolt. Then the first mic gets one over two, and the second mic gets one over two, so they each come up to 60 dB, and the other two that get a very low thing. So I mean, it works in any combination that you can do of, of sound in, uh, going into the microphones. That's
1: so cool. You know, I know. Uh, uh, okay, oh,
3: you, know, you can't wave your fingers on a on a podcast, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> I was That's just going to you-
1: say, I, I know there's there's a lot of people that, including myself and Chris, you know, everyone here that are very appreciative of that work that <laughs> you did. Uh, you know, you, you've really enabled uh, events to do something that they never really could do well before, and uh, it's definitely got to be interesting for you having designed this for yourself essentially you know to to make your life easier and then to see that take life over this incredible you know length of time and really grow uh what's that been like for you
3: well it's been very gratifying extremely gratifying it it pumps me up um when i go to trade shows you know people come up and and just thank me for for my invention you know i i do two kinds of things there i make converts and I accept the uh, accolades of, of people who have used it, you know, <laughs> and, and both of those things are very gratifying because when I do, I do what's called, I call the killer demo. You know, I talk and I show the gain bars on the, on the remote control and I explain how it works. And then finally I go and I switch from automatic to manual and, the, you know, and the noise comes up with just four microphones. It's obvious. And they say, oh, wow. You know, and if they don't mm-hmm. say that, they're not doing sound. <laughs> you know, they're producers or something, you know. But most of the time, most of the time, they think, Amazing, you know. And that you know, and that pumps me up. It really pumps me up. I had I had a customer once fall down and worship me, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's very grat. it's very gratifying. I'm I'm so happy to do something, you know. That's and every great. once in a while you get the union guys. It's oh you're the guy that's trying to put me out of work. No, please. And I said, No, I'm the guy that's making you look good. Uh, because the job that you're trying to do is impossible. You will always screw up, and you will always be embarrassed, you know. And uh, I can help you with that.
0: Hmm. I love on social media. People was like, "Oh, you know, Dan Dugan is my A two today." Or, <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, I love that too. I give him, I give him loves on, uh, I give him hearts on Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> when I see that,
2: you know, the thought that I had is. When you, I mean, when you explain it so gracefully, you're like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But if you just think about conceptually what an auto mixer does, it seems like a product of the digital era. It seems like it's something that would be done with some fancy algorithm and some, you know, gating and, yeah, and side-chaining, yeah. and, and it's it's so simple. It's very elegant, and I think that's… that's yeah, it can be done yeah, perfectly
3: in analog. It's incredible, man. Yeah, it's… It- any kind of computing, analog computing, digital computing, doesn't matter.
2: So uh, uh, here's my one question for the episode: uh, When you think about all of the, <laughs> the the stuff that we have now at our disposal, digital algorithms and and all the cool dynamic processing we can do, like what's the one tool you wish you had when you first started working on this stuff? Like, is there something you're like, man, that mm-hmm. would have been a game changer for me to have, you know, whatever a dynamic EQ or or, or a certain type of analyzer or something like that?
3: Well, there wasn't any digital audio when I started, so so I can't I can't really can't imagine what uh, (laughs) what I would have done if I started doing this in the digital age. But uh, I probably would have prototyped it using some kind of side chain uh, expander. Mm. You know, I I think it can be put together can be faked together with a with existing expanders possibly
1: one thing that I uh, that I saw in uh, especially as a manufacturer you know the uh, this might be an interesting lens to think about it I see you know you're, you're also uh, I would say based on what the societies that you have listed on your website a, an active skeptic and one thing that I know is uh, become you know has always been prevalent in the industry and and definitely uh, is still an issue is you know we run into marketing claims uh, you know and, and educational claims and all these different things within the audio industry the uh, n- unlike something like pharmaceuticals or food or something where it's actively harming people's bodies with the exception of stuff that's too loud bad audio doesn't necessarily hurt someone <laughs> that's
3: right yes but uh, right. it
1: hurts the soul but it doesn't hurt people and you know the what's
3: what yeah, do you well, see as
1: something that can be done to alleviate some of the, you know, the things that we run into where well, know, people are just not being honest.
3: I can give you, I can give you a cadre rant about that anyway. Um, you know, back when in analog electronics, you needed to have engineers work the sound equipment. Um, now digital has democratized it. You know, anybody can set up a podcast studio and, uh, and and, have a reasonable chance of actually getting good fidelity um they don't use too many plugins or whatever you know they don't go crazy <laughs> um and to a large extent in the professional audio industry marketing has taken over from engineering you know you now have microphones which don't have any published frequency response and polar pattern you know and, and how, why would you buy a microphone that you didn't see the frequency response or, or polar pattern? You know, engineers, that's the stuff that engineers used to used to love and make their decisions on and still should. But unfortunately, the democratization of, you know, of audio has also come to the proliferation of hype and uh, marketing over, over science. And uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, all I can do is like, You know, train the people that young people that I work with, uh, interns occasionally, uh, in how to think right about things, you know. (laughs) But that's all I can do.
0: Yeah. Aaron, why don't you hit uh, Sam's typical question?
3: Yeah,
1: so uh, one of the questions that we hit on every episode is, um, what's one thing that you wish you knew when you were first starting?
3: Oh, gosh, Uh, I made, you know, I, I went to the School of Hard Knocks and on the hair thing, I had mentors. I worked with a couple of people who were in these national consulting firms and. I got some misinformation, some some wrong policies uh, in that area, which made my systems not as good as they could have been. Um, But that, you know, so I mean, mentoring works both ways. It can be bad. Um, but I mean, I forgive them. They were doing the best they can and their job had, their big job had succeeded. So gratefully, they, so wonderfully they thought they had the formula. Um, but, uh, uh, it turns out it worked in those circumstances, but not, it wasn't generalizable. But, um, uh, anyway, um, okay. I mean, things that I did like, uh. Uh, Sean Murphy, who uh, scores Hollywood movies, you see him as the uh, engineer records scores for big Hollywood movies. I mean the really big ones. Um, he loaned me a pair of Neumann microphones to record at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. What a sweetheart! And um, I didn't know about preamp clipping. You know, I put them into this uh, Ampex recorder with the built-in preamps and and with a Julius Caesar production that had a brass section and the preamps were clipping and the VU meters weren't moving at all. You know, I I had no idea what was going on. No idea. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) That's the school of hard knocks. Yeah. Yeah,
0: for sure. So Dan, um, the question I typically end with here is I, I like asking it to people who, um, Most people would define what your legacy is, right? When when you're prolific as you are or have made an impact as you are, people often would define what your legacy or what you would be known. But I like to flip that from your perspective. If you could define your legacy or how you would want to be known, how would you define that?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, You know, a uh, a, uh, serial opportunist. Um, uh, who uh, was always uh, striving for perfection in uh, in whatever I was doing, and uh, often foolishly, but um, it worked out in the end um, due to, you know, a lot of accidents, and uh, the main principle, which I guess I would uh, tell the youth, uh, is that, that not you can do anything you can dream. No, no, that's Disney bullshit, but um, <laughs> persistence. Persistence does work. Yeah. You know, if if you've got something that you you think is gonna work and is, is actually seems useful and other people are not following it, like when I'd gone to nine manufacturers with the automatic mixer and none of them wanted it. All of them did inferior automatic mixers later, you know. And that's why mine ended up the best because I patented the best way and they could have mm-hmm. had it, but they didn't, you know. Um, but persistence I, I just worked away at it and and came up with something that was really good. Partly luck, partly habits of perfectionism. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Well, thank you, Dan. Yeah, and I. I, yeah, thank, thank you. you. I appreciate your time tonight. And look, obviously, just like everyone at other Trade Show who has come to you and thanked you, I mean, I, I thank you for, quite frankly, saving my career uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> or keeping it going for as long as it did and and just, you know, what you have brought to this industry, um, you know, not only by just the products that you've made, but again, the example that you've set in terms of the persistence and, um, um, and how much you still care, like, you know, you, you could have checked out a long time ago and have chosen to just continue to, to keep pushing forward. And so um, there's, there's something to be said for that. So thank you.
3: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I love to talk, as you can tell.